Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. Why choose a Sleep Number Smart Bed? Can I make my side softer? Can I make my side firmer? Whenever I want? Can, Can we, we sleep, sleep cooler? Sleep Number does that. Cools up to eight times faster and lets you choose your ideal comfort on either side. 94% of Sleep Number smart sleepers report better sleep. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. To find a store near you, visit sleepnumber.com. Today, we're happy to welcome Professor Stephen Nesbitt from the University of Illinois. Dr. Nesbitt has his hands in a variety of projects and research interests, including mesoscale and cloud dynamics, radar and satellite meteorology, and tropical meteorology. His field research has taken him to five continents with more than 20 field campaigns. One such project took him to Argentina and Brazil to study some of Mother Nature's fiercest thunderstorms. We'll learn all about the Atmospheric Sciences Program at Illinois and some of his exciting projects. Steve, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Great to be here, Marshall. Thanks. Well, I've, I, Steve is a colleague that I've known for many years and just one of the best in the business. So it's, it's, it's great to have you on Weather Geeks. I have to start off with a question that I ask every single guest that we have on Weather Geeks, Steve. How did you get into meteorology? Well, it, it was, it's kind of a short story, but uh, ever since I can remember, I've just been fascinated by what falls out of the sky, whether it be rain or snow, which is dear to me because I grew up in the snowbelt regions of western New York, where you know you, you can wake up one morning and there could be 20, 30 inches of snow on the ground due to, to lake effect snow, as people know in that region of the country. It's just something that just inspires people to really get connected with the weather, whether they're meteorologists or just everybody else, just following the weather, getting involved and, uh, you know, getting out and observing what's going on and what's causing all these things. And so that was really my, you know, curiosity growing up was starting to understand, you know, from, you know, getting trained in, in physics and chemistry in high school, taking those hard math courses, you know, trying to really muscle your way through those difficult classes through college. Uh, just trying to put together a picture and be able to describe uh, how the atmospheric physics operates to produce hazardous weather like heavy rainfall, heavy snowfall, and, and things like that. So, so it's really been a passion as long as I can remember. And you know, ever since I was a kid, I mean, when I was nine, excuse me, nine years old, I you know had uh, the guts to call up the net, local National Weather Service office <laughs> and ask for a tour. Uh, which I'm sure they were kind of surprised to hear, but they now were you very said gracious. Nine, and had nine his, years old? Yeah, nine years old. Wow. I called up the, the National Weather Service office in Buffalo. And I remember going to see some of the technology that they had in, at that time in the 80s, which were, you know, old teletype machines and fax charts and, you know, weather radars with oscilloscope displays <laughs> and right. WSR 57 radars That's and correct. just being fascinated by that and, and, uh, you know, originally I wanted to be an operational meteorologist, but uh, uh, for those of us that went through school in the 90s know that there were a lot of hiring freezes during that time, and yep. that really got my eyes looking at research, and, and so it, the rest is history, I guess. 
Yeah, I want to give a shout out to those Weather Geeks listeners that remember the old Difax wet maps that used to come off yeah, those yeah. big plotters. <laughs> uh, you just kind of uh, triggered a memory there because certainly during my time as a student at Florida State, uh, we had the weather lab up on the roof and those uh, Difax maps would come out wet and we'd hang them and that's what we did. We'd sit there and look at the surface maps or the upper ch- air, air charts. And I, I, I reflect on our students today that they can pull all of those things up on their fingertips on very various websites and and other places so it's just kind of an era gone by yeah yeah i mean i you probably remember this when a new model run would come out it would you know come out of a printer and uh you know everybody would be huddled around waiting for the line by line to come out of the printer and that would be like the forecast for the big snowstorm that was coming the next day and everybody would just kind of look at look at it and then you know we'd post it on the wall uh and everybody be looking at the model runs and you know that's what we had back then yeah absolutely and uh, and and i I probably am a little older a lot older actually maybe several years older than steve but yeah we had the old ngm and lfm models to to today's (laughs) european and gfs models and her so it's certainly an evolution but i want to give some of steve's background before we dive further into our geek out here he has a meteorology a bs with honors from the state university of new york college at oswego a meteor a master's degree in meteorology from texas a&m university and a phd in meteorology from the university of utah all utah although i as i recall steve and correct me if i'm wrong on this you were at texas a&m with professor ed zipser and i believe around that time he moved to the university of utah am i remembering that correctly yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah, he, he moved just at a perfect time for me as I was finishing my master's and followed him out to the, the state of Utah where, uh, you know, got involved in that great department, which is one of the kind of the best kept secrets out there in terms of a good meteorology program at, at Utah. Oh, I completely agree with that. Shout yeah. out to all the people there uh, at the University of Utah in meteorology and also a colleague of mine, Steve Burry, and they're, they're in civil engineering who I've collaborate, mm-hmm. collaborated with over the years. Steve's also a member of the AMS Committee on Mesoscale Processes and the scientific planning team for the NASA Aerosols Cloud Convection Precipitation Mission. Uh, he is the chair of the Radar Meteorology, or what we call STAC Committee within the AMS from 2013. 13 to 2016 at least, and he's a former editor of the AMS's Journal of the Applied Meteorology and Climatology. Just before I kind of go back to Steve, a couple of his major awards, he's won the NASA Robert H. Goddard Award. He's a member of the NASA Global Precipitation Measurement uh, uh, Missions uh, Science Team, Ground Validation Team in 2015, and he had the award for Outstanding Service to the Radar Meteorology Community from the American Meteorological Society, and there's several others. Before I go too far down the road, I do want to get a chance because I think you are the author on what many consider the sort of current and best textbook out there on radar meteorology. Tell us a little bit about how you decided to write a book about radar meteorology. Yeah, so it really came out of uh, me having to teach the class and, and having a lack of resources to go to for students. And, you know, there were a couple other textbooks that were out there by very esteemed colleagues, and they're very good textbooks. Uh, but they're not really accessible for undergraduate students, we felt. And so my colleague, uh, Bob Rauber, who is uh, a senior faculty member here at Illinois, and I got together and said, you know, we've got to fix this situation because there's a whole generation of meteorologists who who really could get inspired by a full-color textbook uh, with lots of examples and, and problems to work through. And so we, we set out and, you know, started writing the book in 2012 and it took a, it was a long process, you know, we we're a little busy and <laughs> we got through it. Uh, and it was, you know, a very good experience to go through and, you know, learn those fundamentals again so we can try to 
display uh, a, a teachable uh, set of materials for students. And that's really what our motivation was, to make sure that the, it was accessible so that uh, future radar meteorologists could look at this as a, as a resource to be able to learn from and, and really get a lot of experience from. Yeah, we're talking with Steve Nesbitt from the University of Illinois, talking all about radar meteorology and observing severe storms. We're going to get all into that, but I just kind of want to lay some framework and groundwork on who Steve is, because if you don't know him, uh, he's um, uh, one of the best in the business in the field of meteorology as a research scientist, a professor, and so forth. You are the head of a team called the Cloud Systems Research Group. Tell us a little bit about that group and what you're up to. Yeah, so we... We have studied many different uh, types of weather systems around the globe. So, so basically, my curiosity extends not necessarily one particular region. I know you mentioned tropical meteorology. That's really where I got started. But we've studied uh, different types of precipitation systems around the globe. Uh, and we try to kind of sit in between uh, different areas of expertise. You know, there are people out there that study cloud physics in a lot of detail, people that study uh, remote sensing in a lot of detail, uh, people that study cloud dynamics or the motions in the cloud systems. And really what I view our expertise is, is kind of trying to integrate a lot of that knowledge into improving our understanding of the holistic uh, processes that go on in these types of clouds. And so, for example, trying to understand how microphysics might contribute to severe storms or how the motions in the clouds contribute to the shapes of the clouds or how they evolve. I think this is, this is really where my curiosity is, and I think it's also an under-examined topic because when we think about weather forecasts, we're oftentimes trying to forecast how systems evolve, and that's a really hard problem, especially with severe storms. They are very rapidly changing, and uh, our observing systems that we usually use for model initialization and forecasts are really not well-suited to look at the motions within the clouds and the processes within the clouds necessarily. And so trying to come up with a better conceptual picture and you know, also make you know, analyses and use our complex equations that we use in meteorology to try to understand the causes of some of the things that we observe. And so that's really where our group tends to sit. And we've looked at systems from almost pole to pole in different projects uh, and uh, ver you know, various different types of weather systems from the most benign snowfall all the way up to uh, the most intense thunderstorms on the planet. Yeah, and we're, we're going to talk about some of your work with MCSs. We're going to geek out on what MCSs are. We're going to talk about Relampago and other things. But before I go in those directions, Steve, you, you've had a long career now. We're both getting up there. We're full professors at our universities. <laughs> Over the years, as you, as you reflect on your research in, in various areas, is there one or two particular things that you've discovered or learned from your research or your students' research over the years that just really stands out for you or sort of what people would say, oh, yeah, that's what Steve Nesbitt's known for? Yeah, so uh, I would go back all the way to my uh, graduate experience. And, uh, you know, you and I were both involved in the TRIM program, which was Tropical Rainfall Measuring Mission. This was a satellite that, you know, came out of the ideas of some real big pioneers in our field like Joanne Simpson and Jerry North, um, going way back. Uh, but uh, this mission was tremendously successful in opening our eyes to really how uh, thunderstorms and convective systems behave on our planet. 
And before that time, all we had were satellite imagery showing the tops of the clouds, and we had really no idea what was going on underneath the tops of the clouds. And so, you know, this TRIM uh, mission was the first mission to have a, what we call the precipitation radar, which was a radar on a satellite that can measure the vertical and horizontal structure of storms uh, anywhere in the tropics and subtropics. And this was really a breakthrough, I think, for tropical meteorology uh, because for the first time we could say for sure what types of storms produce different amounts of rainfall uh, in different parts of the tropics, uh, what storms, you know, whether they be individual thunderstorm clouds, which we thought were very dominant in the tropics up to that time, uh, to really the degree of organized convective systems or systems that self-organize into uh, large lines or collective clusters of updrafts and downdrafts uh, that produce up and you know, we thought maybe they weren't that important, but it turns out that we discovered that they're actually responsible for at least 50 to almost 70% of the rainfall in the tropics. Wow. And this was really not known for, up until this time. I mean, we had some idea about rainfall patterns, but... We were able to show for the first time that organized convection was really a driver for uh, the large amount of rainfall that falls within our global climate system. And that's really important for a number of reasons because it turns out that the heating within these systems really drive two-thirds of the, the wind circulation within, within our atmosphere. So understanding how that heating is produced and, and causes the winds to blow uh, across the, the lower latitudes is really important for understanding basic fundamental processes in our climate system. Um, so the other thing, I mean, more recently, now that, you know, we've grown up and have our own students, you know, I, I have a, a current student who, uh, his name is Randy Chase. Uh, he comes from New York, just like I do, but he has really taken on uh, machine learning and applying it to un trying to retrieve uh, properties of, of snowfall in, in clouds. Uh, one thing that's, as you know, Marshall, is very difficult from a radar perspective is trying to nail down how much precipitation is falling out of clouds. And Absolutely. we know this is very important because, uh, you know, all of our society depends on knowing where extreme rainfall is uh, and trying to nail that number down so that people can take action, whether they have fl uh, issues with flooding or uh, engineering design problems or whatever. It's really important to know how much precipitation is falling out of clouds. And, and snowfall is even worse because, as you know, no, no snowflake is the same. And when we're trying to retrieve how much snow is falling out of clouds, uh, it's very difficult to do. And so what my student Randy Chase has been doing is uh, actually trying to use a machine learning algorithm to combine information that we know about snowflakes in a more intelligent way into taking satellite data and retrieving snowfall. And uh, his, his research has used a lot of aircraft data to validate all these measurements uh, flying through clouds, funded, and this is all funded by NASA, uh, to, to really nail down how much snow is falling out of those clouds. And so his, his work is really going to revolutionize our understanding of the uh, hydrologic cycle and the high latitudes uh, from space. So that's, you know, from end to end of my career, you know, uh, kind of two big things that stand out to me. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast, and I'm speaking with Stephen Nesmond. He's a professor at the University of Illinois in their uh, excellent atmospheric sciences program. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. You just heard uh, Steve talking about trim and these big convective systems in the tropics. And indeed, I was a part of those missions and the NASA Precipitation Measurement Mission Science Team, which now has moved on from the TRIM mission to the Global Precipitation Measurement or GPM mission, which has taken that radar concept to the next phase now that it has a, a dual frequency or what we call a dual frequency radar system that can extend the range of what the radar can see. Because you, you did hear Steve mention something about how difficult it is to measure precipitation falling from a cloud. And we need to know that for a variety of reasons, as he said, flooding, uh, initialization perhaps of models and so forth. Steve, a basic question that Weather Geeks listeners may have, this is just a basic little geek out here. Well, why do we need satellites or even radar to measure rainfall? Can't we just put rain gauges everywhere? And of course, that's a loaded question because we know the answer to that is no, and we know the reasons why. But someone listening to this may not understand why a trim or a GPM satellite is necessary or even a network of radars to measure rainfall. Yeah, that's actually a really good question. And uh, it's it really relies on a, a simple fact that, you know, we all, you know, many of us uh, that are weather geeks, you know, put rain gauges out in our backyard, and we can report that data into networks like Cocoraz. If you, you know, I don't, you've talked to Russ Schumacher, I believe, about that. Um, but uh, you know, we can have thousands of rain gauges across the country, uh, and even then, you think about how much area uh, a, a rain gauge actually collects. It's not that big of an area, and you know, we all have the the sensation. Of, uh, as people to know that, especially when it's raining heavily, you know, you look across the street sometimes and it's not raining at all. And where we're at right now, it's raining cats and dogs, right? So, so that sort of variability is why we need things like radars and satellites to try to map precipitation over larger areas. Um, of course, with that, um, you know, there's nothing like what we, what we like as ground truth being those gauges. Uh, but it turns out that, uh, you know, it, there are challenges in terms of making uh, a, a retrieval of precipitation is what we call it in the field or an estimate of precipitation over an area based on the signals that we get back from a radar. Uh, so on the ground, you know, the National Weather Service has deployed you know, 100 and some radars across the continental U.S., which uh, does a good job at mapping precipitation around the, the continental U.S., but those errors certainly have uncertainties because we're taking, you know, physical electromagnetic signals that are coming back from the clouds and turning those into an estimate of precipitation. And there's error involved in that. Uh, but of course, outside the U.S., you know, most countries do not have uh, as nice of a network uh, of radars as we do. And you know, you start to go to places like South America or Africa. Uh, these are places where there's very few radar stations. These are places also where a lot of precipitation falls that are important for understanding uh, the climate system. But also, you know, local people in those areas are susceptible to hazards like landslides, uh, flooding, and, and drought. And so it's really important as meteorologists to be able to measure uh, on those on large time and space scales what these big drivers are for uh, those hazards. And, uh, you know, we've done projects in other countries to try to help countries improve their precipitation 
capabilities, but ultimately uh, satellites play a big role in that because they're continuously viewing these areas uh, all over the world. So even though these projects are somewhat expensive, they do provide critical information that impacts uh, the global and U.S. economy through things like agriculture and so forth. And I, I wanted you to spend a little time, and you you answered that question beautifully, because I mean, Weather Geeks listeners uh, span the range from people like us to people that just casually like the weather that may not fully understand the complexity of the research and development enterprise, the network of observations, both satellite, ground-based uh, airborne, and et cetera, they all play a role in our understanding and in some cases also improving our forecast and prediction capability as well. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you mm-hmm. went there. I want to talk about some of your more specific research now. I, I know at the AGU meeting in 2019, you talked about the importance of observing what we in the meteorological community call MCSs. So first, talk about what an MCS is and then what some of your research has shown regarding MCSs. And then we can also transition to a discussion of uh, the field campaign that you were a PI on or are a PI on called the Remote Sensing of Electrification, Lightning, and Mesoscale Microscale Processes with Adaptive Ground observations. I hope our producers nailed that, but we call it Relampago, or I hope I'm saying that correctly. But let's start off with sort of a 101 on MCSs and then transition to the broader Relampago mission. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, we'll get to Relampago in a second. You nailed the pronunciation, which is great. Um, the uh, But the basic idea about uh, MCSs and why they're important is that, uh, you know, we all know about, you know, We've experienced afternoon thunderstorms, and you know your listeners in the southeast. You know that uh, you can almost set your watch uh, sometimes in the summer to those individual, uh, what we sometimes call air mass thunderstorms or or pulse thunderstorms that develop in the afternoon. They grow and they uh, go through their life cycle and die out by the time the sun goes down. Uh, and uh, you know those are those are what we call you know the individual cumul- cumulonimbus clouds that uh, produce you know lightning and heavy rain sometimes, but they're not particularly hazardous. Um, but thunderstorms can become more organized, and uh, one of the you know most hazardous organized forms of thunderstorms are called supercells, and they pro- they tend to produce the majority of tornadoes uh, in the Great Plains and, and also in the plains of South America. Uh, these are storms that are very hazardous uh, because they produce uh, uh, tornadoes, heavy rain, and hail often, strong winds. But another type of organized thunderstorm is called a uh, mesoscale convective system. Uh, some people call these systems squall lines, depending on what they look like. These are storms that are organized in a different way rather than supercells, which are organized by these very strong rotating updrafts. Uh, MCSs are organized by other factors, like, for example, a cold front or what we call a cold pool, uh, which is not like your you know, backyard pool in the spring. <laughs> it's, a, it's a cold pool of air that spreads out from underneath the storm caused by evaporation of, of raindrops. And so typically these storms can, can grow quite large. I mean, they can exceed... You know, 60 to 70 miles in dimension. Some of them in South America get to be up to a thousand miles in dimension. These are storms that that cover very, very large areas. Uh, they produce very, very heavy precipitation, uh, and they can be very important in terms of driving how much rainfall falls in a given region. Now, if for those of us that live in the Corn Belt, uh, we know that these MCSs that 
form in some ways on the Rockies and move across the Great Plains, sometimes in the middle of the night, uh, p- produce uh, a lot of rainfall, sometimes you know, one to two inches of rain in a given storm. And these storms are really our primary source of summertime rainfall. And uh, they can also produce hazards. Sometimes they do produce uh, tornadoes on their leading edge, and this is something that uh, is generally poorly forecasted and poorly understood in terms of why that happens. Um, but also they, you know, they can produce very, very strong winds. You may have heard of the term bow echo or derecho. These are MCS-produced strong wind storms that can affect uh, you know, a lot of places during the warm season. And so these storms are very important to study because it turns out that our numerical forecast models that we run uh, do a very poor job typically at representing when these storms grow and decay and, and their possibilities for producing severe weather. So it's really a ripe area for study because uh, they're so impactful in many parts of the world, and yet we really struggle to forecast where they're going to track, how big they're going to be, how much rain they're going to produce, and, and uh, their severity. So, so MCSs are really important from a forecasting perspective. You know, they don't produce the big you know, EF5 tornadoes that we see in Oklahoma, but they do produce a lot of damage if you look at the total amount of damage that thunderstorms produce in the U.S. Yeah, I want to, again, that was just a perfect geek out. It was a mesoscale 101 right there yeah. from <laughs> Professor Steve Nesbitt, because MCSs are significant weather makers, uh, particularly for the United States, but even around the world, as we've we've heard. I also love that you mentioned Boeco and derecho in there, because, you know, it's interesting, derecho is one of those terms, uh, there was a fairly significant one, I guess, several years back that impacted Washington, D.C., and all of a sudden people knew the term derecho and just thought it was one of these new terms like polar vortex or bombogenesis. <laughs> but certainly, as you and I know, that term has been around and in the literature for many decades, in fact. But it just uh, when people are aware of these new terms, I think it, it helps to helps folks like us to educate on what they are, because it certainly was not a new meteorological feature all of a sudden. But uh, I mentioned the importance of MCS and uh, convective processes, not only here, but around the world. I mean, you've been involved in two recent projects, the Relampago Project and also, I guess, the Cacti Project, which is the clouds, aerosols, and complex terrain interactions. Uh, Tell us about, first of all, before we get there, just tell us why you enjoy or why you feel field campaigns are important, because you have done 20 field campaigns on five continents. Why is that important? And then tell us about those two projects. Yeah, so, I mean, field campaigns are how I got started in meteorology, basically, in terms of really getting my hands dirty in research. Um, I think more than any part of our field, field campaigns are important not only just because of the data that we collect and analyze, but also about getting students passionate about our field. I mean, I can't emphasize that enough, how important I think it is for many students to be able to have the hands-on experience of getting out there, seeing the weather evolve with their eyes, and then applying the technology that we have, whether it be radars or models or satellite data, to really quantify what's going on. You know, I think throughout my experience with uh, a lot of the field campaigns that I've been on, uh, being a student and a postdoc and and now being a professor, is, is really seeing that inspiration uh, that can really lead to future careers and, and making sure as many students as we have uh, across all backgrounds get out and experience that I think is really important. Um, and that, I think, was a big motivation for uh, Relampago uh, because it offered the opportunity not only to get uh, students from the U.S., 
to a place in the world where we know very little about the meteorology, but also to integrate those students with their counterparts from Latin America who uh, obviously don't have the opportunities to be able to get their teeth wet with all the technology that we have here, uh, but are just as enthusiastic and share their own experiences about uh, how they got involved in the field of atmospheric sciences and meteorology and, and really develop international collaborations uh, as a result. You know, our, our capacity to, to really improve our predictions of weather really relies on having a strong team of diverse participants across all countries, and we're a very international field, uh, and making sure that we're all kind of monitoring and learning from each other and making sure we can share our findings across uh, national borders, because it's a really truly international science. The global, global climate system relies on us having participants from every corner uh, making, uh, making our field better. So, so Relampago really started um, back in 2012 when I was involved in another field campaign in Brazil uh, called uh, Shuva. This was a, a project to study that was study funded by the Brazilian government to, to look at MCSs in southern Brazil and their severe weather impacts. And we had scientists there from uh, Brazil and Argentina and the U.S., uh, and uh, we really started the discussions there of getting this bigger project started uh, that involved uh, the U.S. in a really significant way. And so at that point, you know, we really uh, got our kind of the drumbeat going for this project. I was fortunate to have a, a sabbatical in 2015 where uh, we decided to, you know, my family and I, my, my two kids at the time and my wife moved to Buenos Aires uh, in Argentina to work directly with the National Weather Service and uh, my colleague, Paula Salio, who's a professor at the University of Buenos Aires who studies uh, MCSs. And uh, we really flushed out a lot of the local uh, participation in the campaign. Uh, it was a lot of work, you know, learning Spanish uh, to be able to communicate with folks <laughs> and also getting, you know, all the logistics set up because, you know, anytime you try to take two countries and interface them at a high level, there's always lots of logistical issues you have to deal with. You know, we can't just walk in uh, to Argentina with a Doppler on wheels radar and expect to drive it off of the boat and take it out to a tornado. You know, we can't do those kind of things. So there's a lot of logistics involved and it took several years. Um, but really the driver was, you know, making sure that we could get this project uh, done logistically, but also make sure it was going to benefit the global scientific community. So fortunately, I was able to draft a great team uh, of scientists across disciplines here in the U.S., everything from, you know, severe weather folks like Karen Kosiba, who I think you've interviewed, and yes. Karen Ra or Kristen Rasmussen from CSU, Russ Schumacher from CSU, Adam Varble from uh, Pacific Northwest National Labs. Josh Werman, who's a famous uh, tornado chaser, um, all the way to hydrologists like uh, Francina Dominguez, who's another faculty member here at Illinois that studies how groundwater influences uh, precipitation. And so we had a really broad set of objectives, including you know, studying lightning, uh, radar, severe storms, mesoscale meteorology, I mean, all these different aspects of, of, of these high-impact storms, and we were able to pull it off. So it was a, it was a great... Uh, uh, project, and we really are appreciative of the, th the support of the National Science Foundation and NASA and NOAA in, in getting this accomplished. 
Beyond that, we were able to also bring in uh, the Department of Energy to fund the cacti campaign that you mentioned. And uh, this this project had a little bit different motivation, and, and DOE is really interested in studying the improving uh, uh, of the interworkings of climate models. So uh, so we were able to get them to deploy a, a complete cloud aerosol observatory uh, in central Argentina for nine months. And we collected this great data set of, of clouds, aerosol interactions, and, and thunderstorms that we'll be able to analyze for a long time. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. And we are back back on the Weather Geeks podcast, and I'm enjoying this conversation with Professor Stephen Nesbitt from the University of Illinois, and want to send a shout out to all the students and faculty and staff there at the University of Illinois. I had a great visit there uh, several years ago. I was able to deliver a lecture, invited lecture there, so I enjoyed my time there visiting with the department. Steve, you're a, what I consider one of the top radar meteorology experts out there right now, so I want to pick your brain. Now, we had sort of in the late 80s during sort of my time as a graduate student, we saw the upgrade to the Doppler radars here in the national um, the operational system. Uh, more recently, I guess in the last decade or so, we've had the upgrade to dual polarization radar, which allows us to see things like the de debris ball associated with a tornado through something called a correlation coefficient. Or we can see different types of precipitation, whether it's hail or a raindrop or snowflake, because dual polarization radar allows allows us to sort of see different, if you will, horizontal and vertical orientations of the polarized wave, if you will, and we can do some nice processing and it tells us a lot about what's going on. What do you see as the next advance in operational radar meteorology? Yeah, so that, that's a great question and uh, I guess there are multiple avenues that we can take in this, in this direction and really the first uh, direction is really, you know, Right now, we have a network of you know hundreds of radars across the U.S. Um, fortunately, uh, technology, as you know, is is making things a lot cheaper. And one vision of you know expanding our detectability of uh, severe weather is to perhaps deploy more radars. And we can you know with all the trade-offs of radar engineering, uh, there are certain compromises you can make to design a system which is relatively inexpensive and could also provide uh, very high resolution and detailed measurements uh, with a network of maybe hundreds of radars across the country. Uh, and there was a recent project called the CASA project. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of it, Marshall, but it was I a have. project to essentially deploy uh, lots of X-band, these small radars that are relatively inexpensive uh, across the country. And they did a pilot project in Oklahoma and also in Puerto Rico. And they were able to show that they were able to, you know, detect a lot of fine-scale structures uh, within storms, map precipitation very in a very detailed way, and and be able to kind of complement the existing radar network and getting coverage very close to the ground. You know, so you know, for example, us radar meteorologists, you know, we have to live with the fact that the Earth is round, and when we shoot a radar beam. Uh, 
it doesn't stay close to the ground very long because of that by earth the, curvature. By right? the so, way, by the yeah. way, before you keep going, I just want to interject yeah. that radar meteorology is one of the very reasons that we know the earth is round and not flat. I just had to throw <laughs> that out there. <laughs> keep going. Yeah, that's true. It's a proof of concept every day. Uh, so yeah, so these beams are not staying close to the ground. So the more radars we put out there, we can actually get those low level circulations that can help us perhaps detect uh, you know tornadoes as they're as they're occur- occurring. Uh, the other thing, which um, I don't know if you've discussed on this show, is is a technology that's currently in development called uh, phased array radar. No, we have not talked is, about that, so I'm glad you're bringing okay. it up. Yeah, so this is a, a, a new technology that's being developed, uh, kind of uh, in partnership between you know Department of Defense type. Uh, research and partners like the University of Oklahoma, uh, I know Colorado State and Stony Brook uh, University in New York, they have these systems, and University of Massachusetts. But what these are are essentially new types of radar antennas that can scan an entire volume of the atmosphere uh, maybe 100 times faster. And instead of having to wait for a radar dish to spin and scan the atmosphere over a period of minutes, these are systems that can really... Uh, can scan an entire side of a uh, of a of a volume of a storm in maybe a minute, and so you know one thing that we struggle with with observations is always trying to get the time of our observations to be faster so that we can understand how these fast processes that operate in clouds like updrafts and downdrafts and the formation of rotation. Uh, within uh, you know nascent tornado circulations, it's really happening on those short timescales. And what can be really revolutionary about this sort of system is that we can get updates every minute or less uh, on these types of circulations, and so that we can increase the time of our warnings uh, even uh, longer, perhaps, than uh, we have in the past, and also just provide our models a lot more information looking at the evolution of the storms as they're going uh, around the country. So, so this is another very exciting technology. It's also very expensive, unfortunately. So at this stage, these are just prototypes, but maybe uh, by the time that uh, you know we're getting ready to hit the, the golf course here in, in 20 years, Marshall, <laughs> That's right. uh, we, we can look at this as more of an operational technology, but there's a lot of very exciting research in this area going on. And I, I should mention that we haven't really talked in depth about phased array radar, so thank you for that description. Yeah. But I do recall that uh, Jim Bridenstine, who's the current head of NASA, the NASA administrator, was on the show. And he did mention that he thought that phased array was a, a promising new technology. I know he's a former former Navy pilot, and so he has, has some experience with phased array radars, not necessarily for meteorological applications. Uh, I had also mentioned recently in my mesoscale class at the University of Georgia about profiler systems, which we do currently that you do currently exist with, that give us information on wind profiles. Um, they're basically these sort of. I, I, I correct me if I'm wrong, Steve. Aren't they kind of a phased array system in themselves? But they're just sitting there pointing up and giving us information on sort of uh, using brag and other types of scattering, giving us information on winds? Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, it uses a little bit different uh, principle. Um, it's it's kind of a really neat uh, physical uh, kind of uh, process that happens in the atmosphere uh, to, to be able to track um, basically energy coming back from small little uh, turbulence in the atmosphere. 
uh, that causes variations in what we call the refractive index, which is how light is is going through a particular uh, medium. And in this case, small little turbulent eddies in the atmosphere are moving with the wind, and we use a radar system like a profiler to be able to detect those variations, and, and we can calculate essentially the vertical wind profile without having to send up a weather balloon, which is really obviously a very powerful thing to be able to do. So yeah, we have one of these systems here at the University of Illinois, and uh, we're, we're planning to use it in an upcoming field campaign to study uh, MCSs here in the plains uh, and looking at the wind wind flows out in front of those systems and to look at how they might be producing severe weather. So, so it's a very important technology, maybe underused, I would say, in our field. Uh, there's a long story about that, but uh, it's a very interesting technology that I think we could use more. Uh, in our final question here with Professor Stephen Nesbitt from the University of Illinois, just going to give you sort of an open mic here. Anything you want to just sort of leave the Weather Geek listeners with and Geeks listeners with in terms of where you see the field of meteorology heading or any advice for students or those interested in our field? Just kind of a parting shot from you. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, really appreciate the opportunity to to say a little piece here about uh, you know, the importance of, of data science, I think, in our field. And uh, this is something that is becoming more and more accessible with you know, developments in computer software and so forth. So you know, traditionally, we, we, as you know, Marshall, we, our students have to take a lot of courses in math and physics, chemistry. They get very involved in a, a lot of heavy-duty math. Um, and that is really important for understanding the dynamics or the essentially the you know how our atmosphere changes on weather and climate time scales but as we developed more observing systems like i've just been talking about uh, more models more runs of models at higher resolution more frequently more more models being run uh, we're just hit with this fire hose of data, and uh, you know we can we can kind of see this scaling past a point where we're able to, as humans, really analyze all this data coming at us from satellites, from models, from radars, from observations of other types. And so we need people that are you know not only interested in meteorology but also interested in taking all this data and be able to integrate it for forecasters and other uh, forecast techniques like artificial intelligence to be able to really take the information that we have and make people be able to use it in a way uh, to, for example, warn the public or make economic decisions and so forth. So really, I see for future students, you know, having that dual expertise of meteorology and be able to deal with data and data science is really being uh, uh, an important thing for the future. So not only, you know, do students, you know, have to be able to do their math and science, but also those computer skills are becoming more important than ever. Yeah, I, I second that motion, if you will, because I'm, I'm seeing that quite a bit as well. Steve, thank you so much for joining us. Before we get out of here, though, it's that time of the podcast. It's time for our Geek of the Week. We like to highlight a scientist superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Patrick Duran. Patrick is an atmospheric scientist at NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama. He decided when he was 12 years old that he wanted to study hurricanes for a living and he has never stopped since he loves cool crisp fall weather which is sometimes hard to find in alabama if you or someone else you know should be a deserving candidate for the geek of the week check out our social media pages on twitter and facebook steve thank you again for joining us on the weather geeks podcast 
Thank you. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, and thank you all for listening. We love it when you join us and geek out. I'll see you next time on the Weather Geeks Podcast. Have you ever wondered how to say good morning in Italian? Or what is goodbye in French? You can ask Alexa. Just say, what is happy birthday in German? Or how do you say hello in Japanese? Do you want to know how to say I love you in Spanish? Ask Alexa and start learning a new language today.